This is your coffee break. Hi friends. Tonight I'm so pleased to introduce you to Hind Hagazi, who is an author of the upcoming novel Behind Picket Fences, as well as the novel Normal Calm. She has what is going to promise to be a very interesting story, and I'm so glad that she got in touch with me to be on my show. Ladies and gentlemen, I introduce to you Hind Hagazi. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. Hind, tell me a little bit about your story. Okay, so it's Uh, It follows four neighboring families, and each family has their own difficulties that they're dealing with, but none of the other families actually see those difficulties. So we have one couple, for example, who they have, you know, lots of kids and you see the joy with them, but you don't see their financial difficulty. Mm -hmm. And you have, you know, another couple where you see that they're happy, but they're dealing with illness and then there's mental illness going on there in, in different families too. So it's really about just the difficulties that we don't see when we look at each other. I love that theme. When you were when you were writing this book, was this a conscious theme that you kind of worked into it or did that just kind of arise as you were writing? No, this was my main message. You know, my main message was, you know, we all have things to be grateful for. And just because somebody else may seem to have a better life than us, that's not necessarily true. If we were to walk in their shoes, we wouldn't necessarily feel better. Our life would not be better. There are different themes that sort of worked their way in and became sort of profound, like forgiveness. I think forgiveness is a huge theme in the book, and that sort of just wove its way, like you said, it just wove its way into into the book. Mm. But I'm glad that it did that. (laughs) <laughs> I'm glad. Those are those are important things to talk about. Are these themes, since they were very consciously put into your book, are these things that you sort of have found yourself dealing with? I think that to some degree, we all do that, right? We all look at somebody else and we say, you know, I wish I had that. I wish I had that life. We all, at the same time, we think, what what do I have? But I think it's very important for us to, I try to be grateful for everything. But that doesn't mean that my life is free of difficulties. I have my own problems just like everybody else, you know? Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to say that to everybody. I wanted everybody to be aware that, you know, even though you have it hard, you still have lots of things to be grateful for. And sometimes that makes a big difference. When you're aware of that, it makes a big difference in your own life. If you dwell on the hardship, it makes your life more negative and it makes it more difficult to just get through. Are these themes that also come across in normal calm and in your poetry as well? My my poetry is more, it sort of happens when I get inspired mm. by something, mm-hmm. whether it's, you know, a conversation with somebody or stuff that's happening in the news or, or things like that. The normal calm I wanted to show, um, because normal calm is about an Arab American woman who is raped by somebody who she considered a very good friend. And it's about how that society looks at her once she's raped. And I really wanted to shout out and say, victim blaming is not okay. It happens in so many cultures. And I wanted to shout out and say, we have to stop it. It's not okay to do that. So that was the main theme there. But there is also forgiveness in that book as well, because um, her rapist comes back. And I wanted to show the humanity of people who do bad things and they regret it and they try to make amends. So forgiveness definitely works its way into normal, normal calm as well. 
You know, that's such a volatile theme. It's such a it's such a theme that I think a lot of people feel so passionately about. Was it difficult to kind of keep it under reins and just not shout your message from the rooftops? Um, I think, well, a lot of the people who have read it have said, you know, you didn't touch enough on her emotions. You didn't touch enough on what she actually went through after she was raped. And looking back on it now, it was a mistake on my part to do that, but it wasn't my focus. My mm. focus was on the social aspect of it. And I think that I did it in such a way that the message is clear to everybody without, like you said, shouting it from the rooftops, you know? <laughs> I hope so anyway. You'll have to read it and let me know. <laughs> so you've gotten some feedback from readers and they say maybe, oh, you should have dealt with this differently. How do you handle that kind of criticism? How did that make you feel? Um, well, with any kind of criticism, I'm I'm actually a big fan of getting negative feedback. I oh. always tell my readers, the positive is really great. Thank you for the positive. But you know what? Give me at least a negative. I need at least one <laughs> negative because it's the negative that makes us better. You know, it's the negative that helps us think about, all right, I did this wrong this time or I didn't do it well enough in the past. I have to work on that. So with any kind of criticism that comes my way, I step back from it because you don't want to take it personally. And you always do the mm -hmm. first, you know, as soon as it comes at you. <laughs> so, so you step back from it. And after enough time has passed a day, two days, a week, depending on, you know, what's being said to you <laughs> after <laughs> enough time has passed, you think about it and you weigh it and you say, well, does this person, is this person saying this from a point of truth? Are they saying it because this is actually what they see? Or are they saying it just to put me down? And you have to, once you step back, you can see the difference. Mm. And if they're saying it just to put you down, then, you know, whatever. And it just, you know, goes over your head and you try to forget about it. But if they're saying it from a point of truth, then you have to take it into account next time. You have to grow from it and learn from it and move forward from there. Oh, my gosh, so much. Yes, I'm sitting here. You can't see me, but I'm just I'm nodding. So <laughs> I appreciate your saying that so much. I'm also very curious I want to know a little bit. I'm always curious to know different writers' writing processes. So when you sit down to write a book or write a poem, and actually I understand that those are very different, so we'll focus on books for now. When you sit down to write a book, what does that look like for you? Well, first of all, I start with a plot, which I've actually, I'm learning the more that I read about, you know, writing fiction. I'm learning that that's not really the way to do it, but that is always how I've done it, you know? <laughs> yes, I know. Uh, the more I learn, everybody says, you know, build your characters, build your characters, build your characters. And I'm like, why, why didn't anybody teach me this a long time ago? I, I don't know. <laughs> but um, so that's always how I start. I start with, or how I've done it in the past. Hopefully I won't continue to do it like this because everybody's telling me that it's wrong. So I start with a plot and then I think about, you know, where it can go and what kind of characters will work into that plot. So that that's how it is. I mean, most of my writing happens at night when my kids are asleep. Mm. Because that's, you know, when I can like, think clearly, you yes. know, even though I mean, they're, they're, they're gone. I mean, they're at school most of the day, but I try to get like, you know, the cooking and the cleaning and all that stuff that just doesn't even need to get done. You feel like this yes. can wait, but, but it can't wait. But it know? can't. You yes. It. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I try to write at night when when they're asleep. And everybody tells you you have to write every day. And I and I agree with that, but I don't always do that. I just I can't because I'm not always doesn't always come to me. I I need for it to be natural. I mm. I can't force it. If I get to a point where I have to force it, then I have to stop and do something else, whether it be writing or reading or whatever. 
Yeah, I appreciate your honesty in, in saying that. You know, you hear a lot of writers who say, oh, yes, yes, I write every day. And sometimes you're just like, really? Do, do yeah, you? exactly. Can, exactly. You, can you do that? I, I know that um, I'm a proponent of saying, you know, you should write every day and I should really tack on the if it's possible or if you can or if you have the mental energy and capacity to do so. Exactly. Um, yeah, so I appreciate your saying that. <laughs> So thank you for sharing your process with us. And I am just so, I'm always curious to know about people. The internet age has made us all stalkers. And so I have to admit, I looked at your website, which uh, for listeners out there is hindhagazi.com, which is H-E-N-D-H-E-G-A-Z-I.com. And I saw that you were originally from Massachusetts and you majored, you have a degree in biology. (laughs) Yes. And and then you ended up in Egypt writing fiction. So, oh my gosh, I can I know your story? Okay. So, um so yes, I was I was born and raised in Massachusetts and and I went to Smith and I graduated with a degree in biology and I was actually that that, that I mean, I love biology, but it was, you know, my my parents who really wanted me to go to mm. medical school. Mhm. And actually I was enrolled in optometry school, but then uh, my younger brother passed away suddenly. So when my younger brother passed away, we sort of reevaluated sort of the course of my life. I was already engaged to my now husband. So my my father said, I want to see you have a family. If Mm -hmm. you don't want to do this, then Mm -hmm. just go and start your family. So so that's what I did. And, you know, I'm, I'm glad that I did. I mean, it was difficult time, of course, but looking back on it, I'm glad that this is where my life has led me to, you know, I have four kids, I would say beautiful, but they're still obnoxious. Um, um, Yeah, so I have four kids and and, um, my my parents are originally from Egypt, but I never lived here until I moved here as an adult. Mm. So it's definitely, it was a change for me. I've been here for 14 years now. It was a culture shock, as they say, because even though Technically, I grew up in the same culture. I mean, in my home, it was the same type of food and it was the same language and all that. But it's never the same um, when it's a country that you haven't actually lived in. And when it's, let's just be honest, it's a developing country. So there were lots of things. And there's still lots of things that I, you know, I roll my eyes about or I say, what, what is going on here? And, what, you know, things that I get frustrated about. That would happen in, you know, anywhere, really. Yeah. So it was a change. And and this is where I am now. And I thank God for my life. What a journey to go on, though. And I also know just a little bit from reading about you online, you mentioned that, you know, you're in Egypt now in a different culture. Can you tell me a little bit about being sort of a a Muslim American woman transplanted from one place to another and how that has affected the way you write and the way that you live your own story? Ah, that's a great question. Because I lived my whole life as a minority, right? And when you're a minority, when you're the only girl who wears, you know, who covers her hair, who wears hijab in in a high school of about a thousand, mm-hmm. you get used to it. You know, you get used to it. You either, not you either, you have no, no option but to just uh, be strong enough to just deal with everything that comes your way, you mm-hmm. know? And you know that, I mean, there were Snickers and there were Sears and there was, you know, all the stuff. This was this was a long time ago. This was way before 9-11 uh-huh. um, when yeah. it was just, you know, I was looked at as strange, you know. When I came here, it's different because everybody, when they look at me, I, I look like I'm an Egyptian. <laughs> but then the way that I think is not how everybody else thinks, you know. Yes. And even if I speak, if I happen to say something in English, 
I obviously I, I say it like I'm speaking with you now. I don't have an accent. You know, I have yeah. you know, like an American. So people will look at me strange and say, what is that? Like, what's going on there? Because here, I mean, they learn English in school, but they have heavy accents, like, mm-hmm. you know, anywhere where English is taught as a second language. So it's interesting to me because I feel like in one way, I fit in in neither place. I'm a minority back home in the U.S., and I'm looked at as strange here sometimes, but that's okay with me. I've grown to accept it, you know, and grow into it and say, you know, well, I fit in somewhere in the middle. And I'm sure that that comes out in my writing. Mm-hmm. All of my writing, all of my my fiction has some kind of a, a Muslim American character. And I think it's important because we don't have those kind of narratives enough. I mean, they don't exist enough in, mm-hmm. in our literature. You know, like, I mean, there are lots of other authors like myself who are trying to sort of break that barrier down so that there are more narratives. And so that when you pick up a book, it'll be mainstream for you to come across a Muslim character in, in a story because it's mainstream for you to come across a Muslim American walking down the street, you mm-hmm. know? So, yeah, it definitely shows up in my work. And um, I'm glad that I learned from a young age how to adapt, you know, how to just adjust to the way that people look at you. Don't get me wrong. I'm really glad that I don't live in the U.S. right now because the horror stories that I've heard about the Islamophobia is like going out of control. The hatred just in general in the U.S. has me so sad. Like Mm -hmm. I'm just disheartened by what's going on. But we have to keep the hope tomorrow will be better. What a lovely message for that. And, And what a place to come from too where I know that in a lot of literature, you know, home is such a strong theme. And to go from place to place, not really feeling like you belong in either space, and then not feeling like your works belong in the mainstream, I mean, that that has to have a very uncomfortable effect. And so, I don't know, I don't want to say like, I'm sorry for it, or but I'm definitely empathetic and sympathetic to that. I'm not saying this very well. No, um, I understand what you mean. No, I appreciate that. But I think I think that we just have to keep working to change it. You know, and I think that that's what that that's what we're doing. I think that, you know, the Muslim American authors that are out there are really putting in an effort. And I think that the near future will show differences in in that field. Oh, I hope so. I hope so. I, I love the idea and the concept of the mainstream just growing to be actually literally mainstream with exactly. and yeah. inclusive yeah. and just, you know, oh, so yeah, that, that kind of hits me very hard as well. So speaking of your of your faith, which you've talked about as well on your on your website, you speak of sort of centering things around a God consciousness. Is that something that you're comfortable telling us a little bit about? Yeah, of course. It's actually it's a very I want to say like it's the main theme in Islam. Mm. It's basically how we live our life, which it, all it means is you are always aware that God knows what you're doing. If you are always aware that God sees you, your actions are going to change. I mean, that's really that's it in a nutshell. Just that we have to be good to each other because God sees us. I want my good deeds to far outweigh. We're all human and we're all gonna mess up. But, <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> but if our good deeds outweigh our bad deeds, then that is the goal, and that is what it is. What it means to be God conscious. Do you feel like that has influenced your work? Uh, definitely. For example, there was a scene in uh, Behind Picket Fences where two of the characters were going to like have a drink 
And I wrote it out because drinking in Islam, it's, it's forbidden. We, we don't drink. So I changed it so that they're not, they're having coffee instead of having drinks, you know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, the characters in the book, they screw up because in life we screw up, but I didn't want it to look like I was glorifying something that I don't believe in. Very fair. This is so fun. Is it? (laughs) (laughs) I hope so. So I'm an introvert. And so I get very like, I don't know, very sensitive to like other people I'm talking to. I never want to waste their time. And I always want to make sure that we're having these like super profound conversations. (laughs) So it's very fun. And to be honest with you, with like your questions and just the way that you deal with like, I mean, not not just me, but the other guests on your show. No, you wouldn't know that you're an introvert. Oh, good. You you do a great job of hiding it, I guess. (laughs) Like podcasting is such a weird hobby. I'm just sort of closed off in my in my office in my little tube of audio foam. And I'm just so alone. And yet, you know, my voice is reaching all these people. I never know quite how to feel about it. And so so thank you for bearing with me. You're doing a great job. Keep it up. You're doing a great job. Oh, gosh, I appreciate that so much. Thank you. So I want to know what is your absolute favorite thing about writing? I think that you get to create a world that isn't your own world. And you get to live in that world for a little while because sometimes you're missing that forgiveness in your Mm -hmm. own life or you're missing that love in your own life. And when you can write it down, when you can make a story, then you can get to feel those emotions that you so desperately need. You know, talk about creating the world that you want to live in. I mean, that's that is certainly one very powerful way of doing that and, and doing it in a way that it can affect other people as well. Exactly. Yes, exactly. Oh, I absolutely love that. I'm also curious, when did you start writing? Like what made you as a a graduate from an American college with a degree in biology, what what first made you sit down and say, I'm going to write some fiction? Well, I've always, I mean, since I was a child, I've loved writing. Actually, when I was in fourth grade, um, the, the storytellers came to our school And for that unit, our assignment was we had to write a play. And the play that I wrote actually made it into like the local newspaper. Oh my gosh, that's (laughs) awesome. (laughs) So just from that moment on, just that feeling, I wanted to write, you know? So it's not, I didn't really switch gears anywhere, even Mm. though like technically my professional life was headed in a different direction. It's always been inside of me. For my my first novel, It started off as a short story. And then I said to myself, well, you've always wanted to write a novel. Why don't you just expand this and make it into a novel? And that's what I did. Oh, my gosh. Good for you for doing that, for seeing something that you wanted and going for it. That's (laughs) that's something that a lot of people, even though they love to write and they recognize their talents in writing, it's something that a lot of people have trouble following up on or, you know, just taking the plunge and doing. So that is really cool. Yeah. Well, I think that what it comes down to is committing to it. I mean, it took me a very long time. It took me like maybe five years to write my first novel from start to finish. But it was really one year of writing when I just, when I said to myself, are you going to do this or not? You know, mm-hmm. are you going to write it or are you not going to write it? Decide. And when I said, <laughs> no, I'm going to write it, I said, I, I was committed to it. You know, I said, that's it. I'm going to write as much as I can. I probably didn't write every day, but I wrote as much as I could every day. And, um, and so I think that that's a huge that you have to make it a priority and commit to it. And then things will sort of fall into place, you know? Yes, they will. I love the the idea of making that promise or that commitment to yourself that you're going to do it. Speaking of that, 
I always, this is a question that I always like to ask because I feel that mentorship is very important in a writer's life. And so I'm curious if you've had a particular writing mentor or just a regular mentor and what maybe a great piece of advice that they gave you was. My high school English teacher, Mrs. Hubert, she, she was really tough. She was really, really tough. And most of the students, because she was kind of tough, most of them didn't want to take her class or, you know, they didn't like her very much, even though she was really sweet, too. Mm -hmm. But um, because she pushed us, because she pushed us when it came to our writing, she wanted us to reach our highest potential. And you could always see that in the comments that she wrote for us when we, when we would, you know, turn in any kind of report or any kind of writing. I mean, it was a, a long time ago, but I sort of I credit her for where I am now, even though, I mean, we're like Facebook friends, but, you know, that, that doesn't really, you know, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's not like I'm getting writing advice from her now still, but what she helped me with all those years ago, I'm sort of been building on that ever since. Wonderful. So she kind of gave you the strong foundation that you needed. Yes, exactly. That's awesome. The way that a person who touches your life, you know, however many years ago can have that really lasting effect and start that ball rolling. Do you have any advice for aspiring writers? My advice would be make it a commitment. You know, you are a writer, whether or not anybody else sees what you write. You are a writer because it is part of who you are. And if you commit to it, the way that you commit to so many other things in your life, you will end up going down the path that you want to. If you want to eventually get published, then you'll find yourself there if you commit to it. Which, like I said, I mean, most people say you should write every day, you should write. And I guess, yeah, you should write every day if, if you can. But if you can't write, you should still keep your mind open. You should still always be open to what's going on around you. And you should be writing down notes about what the guy next to you in the cafe said. And, the, you know, all, like all that stuff that's happening around you because it's all research, I guess. It's all mm -hmm. research, you know. It's all stuff that you might be able to use later. So be open to everything that's going on around you and commit to it. And if you decide that you don't want anybody ever to read your writing, that's fine, too. You're still a writer because it's who, it's what you define yourself as. That is absolutely lovely and absolutely true. And I even love that you expanded the definition of writing to not just include the act of writing, but to just include the way that we live. Very true. I mean, it's true, right? I mean, I mean, that's what we all do when it comes to fiction, especially. Mm -hmm. You take things that happen and somebody said something and you're like, oh, I got to write that down. I'm going to use that next time, you know? <laughs> so I mean, it's just true. It is. You know, how not only how do we fit writing into our daily lives, but how do we live out our writing? Thank you for that. My gosh. <laughs> Anything else that you would like to sort of talk about or say that we can kind of fit in here? No, I mean, I had prepared a, a small part of the book to read if, you know, if you have time for that. If yes. You, don't, then, you know, you do. Okay. I would absolutely <laughs> love that. Do you want me to like say anything introducing it or do you want to just introduce yourself? How, how um, do you want I that can, to work? I can introduce it because it's kind of in the, from the middle of the, of the story. Perfect. So... I'll have you set our listeners up and I'll just like sit back and be quiet and listen. Okay. okay. <laughs> I never get to do that. So this is awesome. <laughs> Introvert is happy. Okay, but very good, very good. I'm glad. I'm glad I could be of assistance. <laughs> okay, so this part of the story, it's about halfway through the book, and uh, one of the main characters, his name is Ferris. He is married to Sidra, and he has reason to believe that Sidra is having an affair. So when he first has that hunch, he asks his younger brother Farouk 
to spy on her. So after he spies on her, this scene that I'm about to read to you is the two brothers. Uh, the scene starts out with the two brothers having a conversation at Farouk's house. Okay. It'll be good for you to get out, Ferris. You need to change the scenery. But I'm not in the mood, Farouk. Laughing, the younger brother said, quite frankly, Ferris, I don't care. You can either come willingly or I'll have to hoist you over my shoulder. You know I do it too. And I'll love seeing how people in the street react to your old man pajamas. <laughs> Ferris cocked one eyebrow and stared his brother in the eyes. You annoy me. Farouk shot back his widest smile. I love you too, bro. Now go get dressed and don't forget your jacket. They had burgers at a local restaurant. Then they went to the movies. While they stood in line waiting to buy their tickets, a couple of women in their late 20s tried flirting with the brothers. We're trying to decide which movie to watch. Which are you guys going to see? The brunette asked Ferris as she, twirled, as she twirled a strand of hair around her finger. Her almond-shaped brown eyes, framed in lush lashes, could hold the attention of any man she chose. Any man but Ferris. He simply wasn't interested. It was too much effort to even feign civility, and Ferris didn't really care how he came off. He just looked away. Farouk's response covered up a possibly awkward silence. Whichever movie you, you ladies decide on. The women giggled, and Farouk continued to flirt with them as they purchased their tickets and took their seats. Farouk and the blonde whispered and joked throughout the movie, making Ferris wish he had just stayed home. This is the last time I let him drag me out with him, he thought. Hoist me over his shoulder. What was I thinking? I'd have him pinned to the ground in no time. You're in for it when we get home, little brother. As they exited the cinema, Farouk charmingly asked, So where would you ladies like to go now? Actually, Ferris interrupted, I'm just going to call it a night. Ferris began to walk away without saying go goodbye or even recognizing the women. Farouk stood there for a second, jaw open, utterly embarrassed by his brother's antisocial behavior. I'll be right back, ladies. Don't go anywhere. He ran after his brother and quickly caught up with him. Man, what are you doing? This is the best thing for you right now. I don't want this. This has never been my scene, Farouk, and you know that. I'm just going to... But the sight of something beyond Ferris made his brother interrupt, grabbing him by the shoulder. That's him! Ferris man, that's him! Farouk shouted, pointing in the direction he was looking. Turning around so he could see what Farouk was pointing to, Ferris narrowed his eyes. What are you talking about, Farouk? That's who? That's him! Farouk repeated, excitingly grabbing Ferris's shirt at the shoulder. That's the man I saw with Sidra! The words forced Ferris's eyes into focus. He saw the tall, brown-haired white man so vividly, as if he were the only one in the parking lot. He didn't hesitate for even a split second. Farouk barely blinked, and suddenly Ferris was sprinting toward James. He lunged at him, punching him square in the face. The man fell to the ground as the woman who was with him let out a gasp and crouched to the floor beside him. Looking up at the attacker, she screamed, What the hell is wrong with you? Why did you punch my husband? Ferris hovered over the couple, breathing heavily, rubbing his, his throbbing knuckles. Farouk, now standing beside his brother, held Ferris's arm back and spoke out, Your husband is having an affair with his wife. Isn't that right, James? James, the woman yelled. He's not James. And that's all I'm going to give you. Oh, now. my gosh. <laughs> Wait, that's a, that's a real cliffhanger. <laughs> well, I hope that works. I hope that, you know, that gets people's attention, hopefully. I think it will. So, okay, so if people are interested in purchasing your books, what should they do? The books are available anywhere books are available, but starting July 1st. But they should be available for pre-order around May 20th. Um, pre-order like on Amazon. And there are links to your books on your website? Yes, that is correct. Excellent. Website. And once again, her website is hindhagazi.com. That's H-E-N-D-H-E-G-A-Z-I.com. I do encourage you to go there and support this lovely author and her wonderful works, which I now really want to read. So thank you so much. Thank, thank you, you so much. Well, thank you so much for sharing your <laughs> excerpt and just for being here with us today, for sharing your words and your thoughts and your insights. 
This has been truly, truly lovely. It has been my pleasure. Thank you so much, Sarah.